This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So welcome everybody to class number five in our journey to greatness. So there's a mashal that's given by Chavis HaTalmidim, something that I believe I heard many, many years ago. And when I was reading this again, it's something that like my wife tells me a lot of times, like, oh, tell me this mashal again, tell me this mashal again. It's a very powerful and potent message. So even if you've heard this before, it's worthwhile repeating. And we're going to break this, you know, in tonight into sort of like three different camps. So the first one, he talks about a very interesting mashal. And he says, last war, you have to keep in mind over here that the author of Chedis HaTamidim died during World War II. So when he says last war, he's talking about World War I. And his mashal is that during World War I, there was a poor shoemaker who lived between two different towns. And there were people who were always walking between the towns and they needed their shoes repaired. So that was sort of his job whenever he needed some parnasa, people would pass by, he would fix their shoes. And that was how he lived. When the war broke out and all travel stopped, so people stopped coming, obviously. And slowly but surely, he had no money coming in. It came to a point where he literally, his family was starving. And his wife would bother him, go out, do something. There was nothing. There was no the war. There was no money coming in. It got so desperate that his family was on the brink of starving to death and one day as he was like basically feeling at the end of his life he just had nothing left in him he went out goes into the field and he davens and says you know you think i'm davening for myself i'm davening for my family the continuity of cholesterol for everything that's going on over here and he lets out like this really heartfelt tefillah and then he lays down and he sort of passes out like he runs out of kaifas as he's sleeping gets like awakened by this aroma, something that smells really, really nice. And he's laying out in this dark forest on the ground. He opens his eyes and there's this like very interesting rose that's laying next to him. And he realizes that there's a fragrance that's coming from this rose that had grown in the forest. And he smelled it and it was giving him like a certain chiyas, like a certain life. So he smells the rose more and he gets some more life and he smells it some more and he gets some more life until he feels like fully invigorated. And he decides he's going to take this rose and go back to his cabin, his little house. And he's going to awaken his wife and his children and give them the, the life that he's breathing out of this rose. As he starts walking back to this cabin, he comes to the road and a carriage comes flying up with a nobleman inside. And he sees this man walking with this beautiful rose. And this nobleman opens the door and he says to him, hey, you poor guy walking with this rose, I'll buy that rose off of you for anything. Name your price. I'll give you money. So he says, money, I don't really need money. I need bread. My family needs bread. No problem. You need bread? I'll give you as much bread as you need. And he sells him the rose for a few loaves of bread, comes home, gives it to his family, and his children are able to eat. That night he has a dream. And in the dream, his father comes to him, and his father says to him, my son, you don't realize what's going on here in Shemayim. Here in Shemayim, your tefillah that you gave, that you're davening for Kla Yisrael and your family and everything, it started like really stirring in Shemayim, like a huge tumult. And one of the malachim was advocating for you, and another one, another one. Finally, like you pushed everything over the mountain. And Hashem said, okay, we're going to give this man a special rose. And this rose is going to be the rose of Tchias HaMesim. And he can take this rose, and he can go and awaken the Avas, and he could go to Hebron, and he could mamish wake up all the Avas, and Meshur Abenu and Elio Anavi, and he could just... Rav Shem he'll just go through from cover to cover to cover. He's literally holding in his hand 
the rows of Tchias Hamesim. It says, and then you started walking home. And you were going to start with your own family. Great. And then you would, you'd realize the power that you hold in your hands. And you'd go from your family to the next family, to your village. And you would get on a boat. You would literally be the catalyst that brought about Mashiach. And then there was a Malach that stepped forward. And the Malach says, gave this man such an important, powerful rose, the rose of Tchias Hamesim. Let's see how much he's machshev this rose, how much he holds on to this rose. And Hashem allowed this Malach to come and to test you and to see if you realize what you had in your hand. And that Malach was the man who was in the, in the stagecoach and he pulls up and he says to you, I'll buy that rose off of you for anything you want. And you fool. You sold the rose for two pieces of bread. And yet your family is able to survive for another few days. But do you realize what you just gave away? You literally gave away the, the key, the ticket to Tchias HaMesim and to Mashiach coming. You literally just handed it back to the Satan. And now Kali Yisrael will suffer. And you will suffer. And in Shemayim, everyone is screaming how my son, the fool, he gave away literally the golden ticket. What Kali Yisrael has been waiting for thousands of years, you handed that back to the other side. And this man woke up and he was totally broken. And he brings down this mashal and he says, I feel bad for this guy, right? Like he had something so powerful in his hands and he gave it up. He says, but... Obviously, it's just the mashal. When you think about the mashal, though, you think of a man who didn't really know what he had. He wakes up in the forest and he sees some rose and he picks up the rose and the rose smells nice. Didn't even really realize what he had. And what is a rose? A rose could maybe make it, it could smell nice, but like his family's starving. So the guy didn't even have so much bechira. Ah, but what about us? We are all gifted with a chelek elikamimal. We're all gifted with a neshama. And that neshama could be the neshama of Tchiyas HaMesim. That neshama could be the neshama that throws Kal Yisrael over the edge. That neshama could be the neshama that brings about the Geula. And we know what we have. We know what we have. We have with inside of us a nuclear energy. And that energy, when it's channeled correctly, the potential that it has to accomplish and impact the world is just unbelievable. And I to the person... That one day they say to him, what did you sell it for? Sold it for a nice car, for a nice house. That's what you sold your neshama for. You sold the ticket to Mason, to the Geula, to the next major organization in Klai Yisrael. Whatever the potential could have been, you sold it away. But for what? And one of the catalysts for growth and for somebody obtaining and attaining their true inner potential, is to sort of think about where am I and what could I be? And when you contrast one with the next, it's a tremendous impact on a person. It it, it pushes a person to realize that wherever we are is not enough. And we have within each one of us a tremendous, tremendous amount of potential. And when we look around and we say, well, this person could do it and that person could do it and that person could do it, just not me. I'll watch it. I'll talk about how great Kal Yisrael is. I'll say, Mikamcha Yisrael, wow, amazing. People are just unbelievable. People are unbelievable. You're unbelievable. You just don't realize it. You don't actualize it because you're looking at other people. But when you look inside at yourself and you say, well, who can I become? Who am I? What can I do with myself and with my life? That changes the shift from other people to yourself. And when you realize that the greatest obstacle to your growth is you, is not anybody else, when you internalize that message, 
That is the greatest thing a person could do to themselves because it gives them the responsibility. A few years ago, I was on a program, Pesach program, and they had different speakers, Rabbanim, and then between Mincha Mayrev on the second night of Pesach is always the time where people who run Pesach programs, they have the longest amount of time to kill because they, they're, they're not ready to start cooking and they have to cook for the Siddharim. That's like the time. Second night Yantif is like the hardest night for people who run programs or for our mothers, but, or whatever. But, okay, that's the hardest night. Anyways, that slot is like a slot where a speaker or somebody has to get up and like really entertain people for like however long it is. On this program, this person got up to speak. It's a balabas, guy who works. And he gets up and he says, okay, Rabbi Sai, they gave me the slot to speak. I have like an hour and 15 minutes together. So if you don't mind, I'm going to give you a share on Chametz Noiksha or some sugya in Psachim, something that like, like, like a, a, a Gemara that most people would not normally like speak about necessarily. And he gets up and he pulls out maybe 10 or 15 svarim. And he's like, okay, Rabbi Sai, let's go. And he starts giving a pilpul drasha, like pilpul drasha, like mamash, like I said, just you're in the rumbum. And he's like taking out like svarim and svarim and svarim. It was like really like a high, high, high level Gemara share. After this year, which didn't necessarily like compute into many people's minds. He sat down. Very nice. At the end of Pesach, he gets up to speak, this man. And he says, I, you know, you probably were here first, you know, first days and you saw that share that I gave. I want to tell you my story. He says, my story is that I was just like you. Regular guy, went to work, did the da. Regular guy. Went to Eretz one year. They had a yachikala, so I went to Eretz I came to Reb Nassim Finkel's house. And Reb Nassim he turned to everybody and he said, Rabbi Sai, you're enjoying the Yachikala? Like, you're learning? It's good. Everyone said, yeah, it's very, it's great, you know? Like, okay, it's great, you know? We saw our kids and seminary, whatever. Like, yeah, it's very, very nice, you know? Very good. So Reb Nassim said, I, I, I would like to ask the Ilam if they can maybe make a donation. Like, maybe you could help me out. So everyone said, okay, the Rashi wants a donation. Sure, like, we're wealthy people. Tell us how much money you need and we'll give you. Says, I'd like you to donate the first three hours of your morning to the Abishter. Can you give me that donation? Is everybody here willing to sign up to that? And then I was like, what is he saying? And Rav Nassim that's all. He said, how many people check in for two, three days to a Yachikawa? They learn, they feel like a schmuck. And then you go back to America and then, and then what? So it's like the younger white have to learn. And I go write out my checks. And like, I show up, I write out a check, I come, I stay in like the Hilton, whatever, you know. I, they wine and dine me, I meet the whatever, I take my pictures, and I come home. And Rav Nassim was like, why do you think that like the, the amkas of the Torah and like the premius of the Torah and like really learning is for two days a year? And, and for all these people, it's for every day. But for you, because you went into business, it's not for you anymore. I want to challenge you to dedicate your mornings to sitting and really learning. And this man said, I, I took that to heart. And I realized that I'm giving all these reasons and excuses why I can't learn more, I can't do more. But I recognized that Rav Nassim was talking to me. So he came back the next day and he told his wife, there's a big shift in this house. I'm telling you right now, instead of me getting up at like 7, 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm getting up at like 4 a.m. And he said, for the last 
10, 15 years, however long it was, he said, every single morning I get up and I learn and I have my Siddharim and my Chavrusas and we learn Gemara like first Seder, Yar Valyavar, every single morning. Why did he say this? He said, I'm saying this because I want you to know that I'm nothing special. I was exactly where you are. I was you a few years ago. And the reason why I gave you that shear is because I wanted to show you, even though it wasn't the most exciting shear, and it wasn't a million stories, and I'm not the most captivating, you know, orator, and I'm not giving you like these spellbinding stories. I said that shear because I wanted every single person on this program to know that that could be you as well. Everyone was like, wow, that's a hischaivas. Hischaivas of a person understanding that we have within ourselves tremendous potential. We can do so much. But we often look around and say, maybe this person, maybe that person. No, maybe you. Maybe you can do things that you don't think you can. You think everybody else is going to do it. I'll tell you a small story. A few months ago, so I was very bothered. I'm still very bothered by, I don't know if I should say the word shidduch crisis. Some people don't like the word. But by, by the current system of whatever's going on. I, it bothers me immensely, immensely, immensely. I think that bothers me immensely. Whatever. I don't want to get emotional. It bothers me immensely. Um, I get emails about it all day, and, and it, it really does. It bothers me immensely, immensely, immensely. I think that if things were changed and it was the, the boys who had a hard time, I think there would be mega asifas and things that would be changed very whatever. And I, I feel the plight of what girls are going through. Okay. I, I decided I wanted to speak to some girls. Some of you were probably there. And to see if there was alternative solutions to delve in to see like what the main issues or problems, you know, might be and to figure out some core issues. So we had a meeting with girls. We had a meeting with boys. And boys also have their, their problems. Their problems are very different than the girls. Whatever. We won't get into that right now. But fine. We had, we had these meetings. And we were talking at the time of, you know, is would solutions be grassroots coming from the people? Would would solutions be like systemic coming from, you know, the upper echelons of Rabbanim, Rashi Yeshiva, and Shadchanim? Like, what angle should we, you know, hit this at? Okay, we had this meeting, very nice. Lamaisa, it didn't happen. Meaning, as far as I was concerned, nothing, nothing, no, no. No circuit breaker was switched and all of a sudden something changed. But there was a girl who was at that meeting who went home and she sent me a message after and said like, chop, chop. Okay, what's the next step over here to this thing? And I was like, I, I don't know. Like, you know, we have to think and we have to. She went on her own and she lives in Great Neck and she started a new organization in Great Neck, got the Rabbanim there involved. She got a whole bunch of Shachanim involved. And within a really, really, really short amount of time, they've been processing like literally hundreds of singles, databases, like all the stuff that like people would dream that we had, they started putting into place there in their community. And lo and behold, she was the first Kala to come out of this new organization. Okay. After all these, she, she lit the match, she said it, and there was reciprocity there. There was a very beautiful culmination to this. A lot of people blame everybody else for things that are not done or everybody else can do things. But you could also, you could also. And if a person says to himself, two things, let me dream and let me plan. And there's a difference between a dream and a plan, okay? 
The dream is a dream, and a plan is where you take that dream and you formalize the steps to actually making something happen. Then very often, you, think, you see things happen. That's number one. Number two is something which I think many people struggle with in their own way. And that is the balance between arrogance and humility or maybe false humility with the balance between those two. I'm going to use the word, he doesn't use this word, but I'll use the word, the word confidence. What does it mean to be a confident person? Now, what's wrong? Let's, let's go back a step. What's wrong with not being a confident person? So what's wrong with not being a confident person is that if you're arrogant, and when nobody thinks they're arrogant, nobody thinks they're arrogant, right? But <laughs> oftentimes we're arrogant. We're just like, no, me, I'm not arrogant. I'm confident. No, arrogance and confidence look very similar. When a person is arrogant, when they're egocentric, when they focus on their ego rather than having a neshama perspective, they don't think they need to work on anything. Like, I'm good. I'm fine. That's arrogant. What are you talking about? Everybody has things to work on, right? When a person has no confidence and no arrogance, so they're on the bottom of that, of that scale, what does that look like? Who, me? I can't do that. So finding yourself somewhere in the middle is that confidence where you say to yourself, yeah, me, I can do that, and I need to do that. You find yourself in a place, the way he explains it, is that you're not as influenced by other people's deas as much as, and I think that when he talks about this, it really starts from childhood. Because when we're children, we're very influenced by other people. We want recognition from our parents. We want approval from our parents. We go to school. We want our peers to like us. We want to fit in with the group. There's always, when we're kids, because we're, we're, we're not anything yet. We don't have that inner confidence. So you go into a room of kids. I, one of my friends, I just met him, and he says, Oh, Ruby Nipsey, I remember you. You were the kid in kindergarten for pre one who was crying with his white knapsack. I was like, Oh, thank you. You know, like when we're kids, whatever, maybe you are. I don't know. Okay. When we're kids, that's, that's, that's what happens because we don't, we don't have enough of ourselves to like kick down the door and be like, Yo, I'm here. We don't do that. You come in, eh. Am I sure good? We're like all insecure about who we are. Many people, the only thing that changes as they advance in age is the age. That's it. The inner midos don't necessarily change. They're not truly confident. They're going to a wedding and they're 50 years old and they're like, oh, how's my shirt? <laughs> how's my dress? How's my necklace? Everything becomes like, you're not really you. You're, you're whatever everybody else perceives about you. And a confident person doesn't walk into a wedding wearing, uh, you know, jeans and a t-shirt for a man, right? Or whatever the equivalent for a woman. You, you, you get dressed, you, you do your part, you fit in, but you're not so focused on it. It's not like the sole focus of like, how do I, how am I perceived and what are people thinking about me? That's not, that's, you know, that's not a thing. You're living you, you're doing the best you and you're real with yourself. And, one of the things that holds many people back is that they're nervous what other people are going to say or other people are going to perceive or they'll share, they'll share something with somebody else and be like, wow, what are you, crazy? You? That? No. And I was thinking how there's probably not one major organization in Kalyastral that was started that did not have naysayers who told them that it can't be done or it shouldn't be done. 
They have their reasons why it couldn't or shouldn't be done. There's a major organization, I won't say which one, that I know the person who, they, 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 I won't say that they founded the organization, but they were involved from the very, very, very beginning. This is an, a household name. Everybody here knows this organization, a household name. And when he started this organization or he got involved, people told him, oh, I'll give you, like, I would give you a million dollars. But like, but you're not going to be here. Like, who's going to support this? Like, what, is, what use is this? This is nothing to this. The whole world was telling him he was crazy. Now you look back, you're like, wow, who would have who ever said that? That Like, everybody uses this organization. It's not even a thing. Every single movement, every single successful, whether it was a yeshiva or, or, or a chesed, anything, always there are going to be people that are going to tell you this shouldn't be done or this can't be done. My friend once said a story. I asked him tonight if he had a source for the story. He didn't. So I don't know if it's true or not, but this is the story. The story is, is that Ramir Shapiro, who famously started, besides being a genius and, and, and everything else on Yeshivas Chachmei Lebun, Ramir Shapiro was the one who had the idea at the Knesset Gedela in 1923 that they should start Dafyemi. And he spoke about the concept that Dafyemi will be a global phenomenon where a Jew, no matter where he is, he sees another Jew and they could talk because they're both on the same daf. That was Ramey Shapiro's idea. And he said that to Knesset Gedela, I think there were about 600 people there. Like today that would be like nothing. But, you know, there was like 600 people there. And, and, and many people took that very seriously. And they decided that the start date for that would be Rosh Hashanah of 1923, which was September 11th, 9-11, 20, 1923. That was the first day that Dafiemi started. And all the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that do Dafiemi today is all due to Mayor Shapiro. That idea, that vision. Now, this is the story. I don't know if it's true. But the story that I heard was that Mayor Shapiro, after this kicked off and it, it started, and it, it succeeded beyond even his vision because he expected it to be like a local thing. And instead, it really grew because by the Knesset Gedela, people had come from all over Europe. So they sort of brought it back to wherever it was. The Gera Rebbe then, you know, took it on and he started. And then they started with like local um, siyumim when they finished each Masech. That became like a, a movement right off the bat. The story goes that Ramir Shapiro was traveling on a train and he met a man and he was talking to him. And the man was saying, oh, I'm from this and this town, blah, blah, blah. And I'm married to this and this woman. And Ramir Shapiro said to him, oh, you're getting off at that stop? Do you mind if I come home with you? He came home, and Ramir Shapiro came into this man's house, and he saw this woman, and he said to her, do you remember me? So she said, no. He said, we used to play together, like in the sandbox when we were younger. You don't remember? She said, oh, yeah, I remember you. So he said, do you remember when we, when, when we were kids that I, I used to talk about Dafyaymi, like this thing Dafyaymi? So she said, yeah. He said, do you remember how you used to make fun of me? And used to say, daf hayoimi, you'll do a daf every day. Maybe daf hayoina, like it'll be like a bird, because like a gemara is like a bird. It'll be like a bird flying around. Yeah, everyone's going to do daf hayoina. Yeah, yeah, let's see what's going to happen with your, with your brilliant idea. And he, he, he expressed to her, at least this is the way I heard the story, that he expressed to her, like, you don't know how many times that comment, daf hayoina, almost made me give up on the vision. I thought, yeah, maybe it's not really a thing. It's not going to go anywhere. For me, if I want to learn Daphne, I'd be fine, but it's not really for everybody else. That one little comment almost derailed the entire Daphne. Even if it's not a true story. We all know almost anything that 
when you have an idea that's different, I know Weinberg used to say, right? when, when you start something new, everyone's going to tell you you're crazy. And when it's, succe- when it's successful, I'll say that they're the ones that started it. Right? We, we all know of people who, who had ideas and the naysayers come out of the woodwork. Because it's very easy to be a naysayer. You don't have to, tell, you don't have to spend any money to tell somebody that's a terrible idea. But to believe in somebody takes a lot of confidence. And to believe in yourself takes a lot of confidence. I remember when I was learning in Eretz Yisrael, so when I came to learn by Berkowitz, the call, the Berkowitz's call is meant to send people out to change the world, to impact the world, mainly in Kiruv Rechaikim, but in different areas as well, that's sort of like their vision. And when I came to Berkowitz, I told them that my family is a family of accountants. So even though I'm coming to like a cure of kolel, my real motivation for coming here is that it's a halacha kolel and I want to learn halacha. So Berkowitz said, it's very nice, but I don't train accountants to learn halacha. Like if you're here, you're here 100%. You're not, you're not going to become an accountant, right? At the end of all my years there, um, I was talking to our Berkowitz and he said, okay, you know, it's been many years now time for you to go back to America and become an accountant. But at the same time, you should look for something that you'll be able to do like on the side, part-time, whatever. It's fine. So there was somebody who came to Israel and his job is to do placements for McCarvin and really all across the globe. And his job is he goes from city to city, finds out what jobs are open, assistant rabbi here and campus rabbi here, whatever. So this man came and he was like the guy. You met with him, he would like place you, you knew every rabbi in every city across the whole world. So my wife took off for work. We had a meeting with him and we made our resume, like our Gracer resume, you know, like it said like nothing. It just said like, <laughs> I don't know, I was born, I got married and I learned in Kola. That was like, you know, my whole resume. And uh, we had a meeting with him. The meeting's supposed to be an hour. He gets to know you, gets to know your strengths. You're good at public speaking. You're good at dealing with people, whatever it is. And then he recommends, okay, here's the jobs. I'll connect you with this guy and that guy and everybody else. Mine is after, you know, close to five years learning by Robert Berkowitz. So to me, this was like the shift between I'm not an accountant to now I'm going back to America and I'm going to become an accountant. So I had my speech down to like a science. Okay. Hi, my name is Ruben Epstein. I'd like to do something in the New York area part-time so that I can also get my master's degree and work in the family business and work on taking over the family business in accounting while doing something for the call. That was my speech. Okay. Come in, one hour meeting, very serious. We sat down. I give him my resume. He looks at it. He goes, okay, you have a pulse. You're married to someone who has a pulse. Baruch Hashem, great. Okay, what would you like to do? I give him my speech. Hi, my name is Ruby Epstein. I'd like to go back to something in the New York area so I could do something part-time while pursuing my master's degree and doing and working in accounting. Takes my resume. He ripped it in half. He threw it on the floor. And he's like, do me a favor. Go call in the next guy. This meeting is over. It didn't even last a minute. A minute is being nice. Literally maybe 40 seconds. I was like, that's it? It's like, that's it. No interest in, in helping you. A guy who comes in, Newark area, uh... I'm here to putting guys on the moon to do Kira. Like you're coming in New York area, part-time accounting. 
You're going to be juggling 17 different things. You're wasting my time. I'm not even spending an hour with you. Just calling the next guy and that's it. So I left. I was like, okay, that's the end of the road for me. You know, that was five years spent, you know, preparing for nothing. Um, and that was it. So came back to our Berkowitz. I told him like the story and he said, okay, you'll see where life takes you. Two weeks later, Rebbe Siegel from Staten Island, um, he came to America and they asked me if I wanted to interview with him. So we went for an interview. They asked me if I want, he's coming here for two days. Do you want to interview on the first day or the second day? I said, you know, let me just get this over with. Let the next guy rip up my interview, end of my dreams, and um, let's, just, let's just not prolong the agony. So we had a meeting with him. And I said, hi, my name is Ruben Epstein. I want to do something part-time in the New York area. He says, Rabbi. I said, Rabbi, you want to come work for me? I'm in Staten Island. Offer you a job, give you flexibility. Anything you want to do, do. The world is in front of you. I love the vision. I love the fact that you have a parnasa. Great. You want to come on board? And I was like stunned. Like from this meeting to that meeting. I said, yeah. Okay, great. And literally the minute my meeting with him ended, his phone rang that his brother had just been nifter. He didn't meet with anybody else. Flew in Tyre to Shaw, met with me, gave me the job, got right back on a plane, went, sat Shiva, and then we moved to Staten Island. And the course of our life just took that road. Literally from nothing, I mean, not believing to this. Now, I'm, I'm no great shakes. But within my life, somebody believing in my vision versus somebody just throwing my resume on the floor and saying, yeah, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard in my life. To you. You're wasting my time. We all have that. And very often we're the ones that are throwing our own dreams on the floor. I can't do that. That's not for me. I don't have the time. I don't have the kaifas. I don't have the energy. Yeah, you do. If you put, so, if you put your mind to something, then you can. You can be matzliach. But if you tell yourself that you can't, or you listen to the people who tell you that you can't, and they make fun of you, then you'll never know if you're able to. Because you never actually gave it a real try. And that's the second step. The third step is, I think, just the most simple step, but it's probably the hardest. And that is the people you surround yourself with. The people you surround yourself with, his advice is that you surround yourself with people that are, I'll call it within your sphere of influence. People that are above you are people who are bringing you up. They're not too far ahead of you. They're not geniuses. They're not people that are just like a million miles away from you. They're also not people who are too far behind you. They could be a little bit behind you, that you're bringing them up by osmosis, by not working too hard. Just the people that you're surrounding yourself with. And then there's the people who are very similar to you. They have common goals and things like that. Somebody who's too far behind you, he says, will drag you down. People that are too far ahead of you are, are, are not going to be any assistance to you because it's very hard to keep up with the genius. You know, I remember when I was taking my accounting, my uh, CPA you know, going for my CPA license for my degree, um, there was a guy who was taking the exam. He asked me if I would study with him. So I said, what did you get on your previous exams? He was like, 99, 99, 99. There's only 99. There's no 100. Because nobody's perfect, whatever. So they, you know, 99, 99. And he's like, I, the last two, I need somebody to study. I was like, I'm not studying with you. There's no, no point in me studying with a guy who's getting 99s, okay? That's the genius guy that... You're not talking the same language. He's talking a different language. He's like, yeah, he memorized everything. That's not your friend. 
unless he unless you're like that like that's the guy who's head and shoulders above everybody else the, the person who's within your sphere of influence they're the person that you connect with them you relate to them they're a little bit better a little bit worse more or less within the same ballpark that, those are the people that you should try to hang out with as much as you can and a person is influenced reality by their family and then immediately after their family more often than not is going to be their friends and if you remember that then you'll surround yourself with good people i recently got a call from somebody who was dating a girl and he was asking me that the girl was making comments okay now he he was asking me he said the girl for example he went out to a restaurant and nice place nice place and the girl said oh like i I don't really like going to this and this place he's like why not spent like four hundred dollars between two people what 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 was wrong with it no i don't like like they didn't have like tablecloths like they didn't have like nice tablecloths on it just wasn't you know wasn't it wasn't wasn't to my level of class you know okay like he got her a gift and she's like is this is this real like is it authentic like got her something else like how many carrots is this like everything was like a comment about materialism and money and he was like it's so interesting this girl's not from a wealthy home where does it come from it comes from things that she was exposed to her friends movies whatever and it's very interesting that we don't even realize that much of our emotion, how we process things, how we process anger or speaking to our friends or parents or, or just being like, oh, I feel so bad for you. Like those little subtleties, when you surround yourself with somebody who's who has that mida or has that emotion, you learn that. One of my rabbin, he once told me that he, he had over <laughs> a group of bachram and on Friday night, he gave his kids a bracha. And he gave each one like a kiss on the head and he like whispered something in their ear. And at the end of the meal, one of the Bachram hung back and said, Rebbe, can I talk to you for a minute? He said, sure. He said, what, what was that thing that you did after you gave your kid the bracha? He said, what thing? He said, yeah, like you, you, like you put your lips on the kid's head and then you whispered something in his ear. He said, yeah, gave him a, like, gave him a kiss. You know, like, like Yaakov Avinu kissed his son. Like, he was like, "What? what's shot in that? Like, why would somebody do that? And he was like, I think we need to have a little, little bit of a longer schmooze than just like right here, right? The guy never grew up in a home where such a coldness, such a, just just not there, just not, not feeling that. And we don't realize necessarily how influenced we are by our parents, by our siblings, and by our friends, and by the things we expose ourselves to on our phones or dumb phones or whatever right we just we don't realize that or our work environment or whatever the case may be and it's incumbent upon a person to, to realize that and we spoke about this last time that these types of things exposure is contagious exposure is con- contagious it affects you in ways that you don't even realize that you're being affected you don't you you, you when you live in grandeur when 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 you see and experience materialism when you see your friend who's engaged and the first thing you look at is her ring, you don't realize these subtleties, you're influenced. You're influenced. You're not looking at your friend and saying, I'm genuinely happy for you. You're looking at your friend and you're saying, how big is the rock on your finger that was mined out of a mine by somebody in Africa? Like things that are so not Negea to like their overall happiness in, the, in this couple's life. But when that's what you see, then you don't realize how influenced you were. And if a person recognizes three steps over here number one is believe in yourself 
you versus you. The more you put your mind into what your capabilities are, into bringing out your own potential, that's going to influence more than anybody else in your life is going to influence you. And number two is having confidence. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't allow other people to influence and tell you how you're wrong and you can't and you should or you shouldn't. At a certain point, it's time to break free and to realize that you're the one who has the vision. You're the one who has the goal. Go for it. Believe in yourself. And number three, the people you surround yourself with. Be very, very cautious because you may not even notice it, but slowly but surely, you surround yourself with people who have the flu, you'll catch the flu. You'll start coughing, you'll start sneezing, you won't even realize it. It's very subtle, but even worse than that, because the flu comes and goes in a few days, even worse than that, if a person's outlook on life, if your emotions, if the things that, the way that you process things are influenced by people around you, and you're not realizing it, then in the long run, that will influence you as well. Yes, I just want to give a plug that next week we are going to start um, a journey of unity. Anybody wants to sign up for our WhatsApp group um, and check out um, nasanow.com for subscription and uh, more information about other upcoming classes. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.